That has to be the most enthusiastic introduction I've ever... <laughs> that was like a sermon, wasn't it? I mean, it's, it's like a warm-up act at a concert, you know. Uh, thank you, Adam, so much uh, for that uh, introduction. What a joy it is to be here at Placerita Bible Church and uh, to be reconnected with my friend Adam Tyson. And to, I saw Dr. Bill Barrick this morning and... Uh, it's just wonderful to be here, and there's so many evidences of life that I can already sense as I'm here with you, the warmth of your fellowship, hearing you sing as you worship the Lord. You're in a very good place. Uh, th this is not a dead church. This is a church that is alive unto God, and what a privilege it is to be in a place like this and where the Word of God is, is so honored. Now, Adam, you set the bar so high, I cannot even come close to... <laughs> to getting over this bar, so you're going to have to grade me on the curve um, this morning. Um, I have one chance to be able to preach to you, and I know we've got communion here at the end as well, so I, I need to, to hop in and, and let's get going, okay? I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to turn with me to Philippians, to the book of Philippians, from which we heard the scripture reading this morning, Philippians chapter 1. And today I want to talk to you on this subject, God finishes what he starts. In Philippians chapter 1, I want to read the first six verses, but it's verse 6 that I want us to spend our time uh, examining today. Philippians chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 1, but my eye is on verse 6. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident, and this is our focus, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's been my joy to work over the last decade with Ligonier Ministries in Orlando, Florida, and that was started by Dr. R.C. Sproul, who's recently gone to be with the Lord. Whenever I fly to Orlando, and I literally was just there last week, um, I'll rent a car and I'll begin to drive up what is known as the I-4, Interstate 4. And as I head north towards the Ligonier campus, I always pass something on the right that is just an unmistakable sight. In fact, it's just hard to forget. It's called the I-4 Eyesore. And it's a very tall building of about 15 stories that they began construction 18 years ago in 2001. But what makes it an eyesore is that it's never been completed. It's just the empty shell 
of a building and probably will always be. They've poured $30 million into this eyesore of a building, and there it stands as an unvacated, uh, empty office building that is a colossal monument to what was started was never completed. And this I-4 eyesore does stand as a visible reminder to us that what man starts, he often does not complete. Tragically, it's true in business, it's true in politics, it's true in a marriage, it's often true in ministry. And what thrills my heart about this verse as I look at verse 6 is that God is not like man. And whatever God starts of a redemptive nature and the salvation of a person, God never walks away from the project. God always finishes what he starts. Uh, there are no exceptions to this truth. And that is what Paul is saying here loud and clear, that he who began a good work in you shall perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, this is known theologically as the truth of the perseverance of the saints, but in reality it is the perseverance of our God in the saints that even when we are weak, he remains strong. And as Spurgeon, you quoted Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, Noah fell down many times in the ark, but he never once fell out of the ark. And so it is with our position in Christ. There are times that we falter and trip and fall, but we never fall away from his grace because he has a grip on us and he will not let us go. So as we look at verse 6, I, I want to break it out into a couple of headings. And I want you to note with me first the certainty of this work. Notice how verse 6 begins. For I am confident of this very thing. Paul could not have started with a stronger note of certainty concerning God's irrevocable work in his people. Uh, you want a preacher to sound like this. Uh, you want a preacher who is emboldened with deep convictions, who's not just merely thinking about the possibility of something, but who has rock-ribbed convictions about the truth. And this is exactly where Paul was. And he says, I am confident of this very thing. This word confident is a, is a Greek word, pytho, that means to be deeply convinced. It means to be strongly persuaded. It, it could be translated resolve. And Paul's not just dogmatic about this, he's bulldogmatic about this. And there is no room for equivocation on this matter whatsoever. Now, there are truths that in theology, there's room for some disagreement of doctrines of secondary importance. This is not one of those. This is a truth and a doctrine that Paul is absolutely dogmatic about. And you and I need to be dogmatic about this as well. And his confidence, the certainty of this persevering work, 
And it's not just in the Philippian believers, it's in every believer here today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, you too should have this very same certainty that if God has begun a work of grace, saving grace in your life, God will complete the project that he has begun. And Paul's confidence is not in the Philippians, just like our confidence is not in ourselves. Paul's confidence is in God, that God is a, is a working God, God is a Savior, and that God will never walk away from a project that he begins when he institutes and inaugurates a work of grace. So I want to ask you, has God begun a work of grace in your life, a, a saving work of grace? And if so, you should have the very same confidence with which Paul, Paul speaks here. But I want to move quickly to my second heading, which is the commencement of this work. We've talked about the certainty, but I want you to note the commencement, the beginning of this work. He says in verse 6, he goes on to, to, to write, for I am confident of this very thing. Now here it is, that he who began a good work in you. Let's just stop right there. And this points back to when Paul first came to Philippi. You can find it in Acts chapter 16. And Paul went down to the riverside and there was a woman named Lydia and some other ladies were there and Paul preached the gospel to them. And the Bible says in Acts 16, 14 that God opened Lydia's heart. That was a work of grace that, that God began. He opened her heart and she believed the truth of the gospel. And that clearly implies her heart was closed to the to the truth of, of salvation, and God had to, to, to open it. And it's the very same word that's used later in Acts 16 when they threw Paul into prison and a mighty earthquake came, and the earthquake threw open the prison doors in the prison. Uh, that's exactly the same word here. It was a spiritual earthquake that hit Lydia's heart and threw open her heart. That was a work of God. And not only was Lydia saved and some of her associates, but also the Philippian jailer that night, God swung open the doors of, of his heart and conquered his heart by grace, and as well as the Philippian jailer's household. Now, I want you to look more uh, carefully with me at verse 6, and I, I want to just comment on a number of key words here. And the first is he, being confident of this very thing that he. Who is the he? Well, the he clearly refers to God the Father. And I want to stress this because I believe in these days the forgotten member of the Trinity has strangely become God the Father. Uh, Adam mentioned Spurgeon in preaching Christ, and Christ needs to be front and center in our preaching. And with so much mention of the Holy Spirit in these days, the member of the Godhead, in my estimation, that has become greatly overlooked is the first person, strangely enough, the first person of the Godhead 
and that would be God the Father. And Paul stresses God the Father. You'll note in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He, he is the initial fountainhead from which this grace is flowing into our lives, mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from the Father through the Son and is applied by the Holy Spirit. But it is coming from God the Father. And in verse 3, he prays to God the Father. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And prayer works the very same way. We are instructed by Jesus to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus as we are directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so this work that began in them, Paul actually attributes to God the Father. And you'll also note that when he says he, he does not say we, meaning it was exclusively begun by God the Father, and it is not the Father and the Philippians working uh, together. This was exclusively a work of God the Father. Then notice the word began. He who began a good work in you. This clearly implies there was a time when God was not at work in their life, when they were lost, and when they were in darkness, and when they were dead in their trespasses and sins. God was not at work in their life in a saving way at that time. But then came that day when Paul came to town, and Paul began to preach the gospel. And as the word of God went forth from Paul, God began to work in a heart-opening, soul-saving way. And it was a good work, this says. And that word good here means excellent. In fact, it, it, it's not just a good work. And it's not just a great work. It is the very best work that God does when he saves a soul. Uh, there is no greater work that God does than when he rescues sinners who are perishing in their sin. Greater than when God created everything out of nothing. When he said, let there be light, it's when God created spiritual life in your dead soul. Uh, greater than when God created all of nature, it's when he created a new nature in you. And greater than when God said, let there be light in Genesis 1, is when God shined gospel light with illumination into the darkness of your soul. That is a far greater work of grace. And greater than when God created the first man is when God made you a new man and a new woman in Christ Jesus. That's what God has done in you. He has begun a good work in you if, in fact, you are in Christ today. Now, more specifically, I want to spell this out. What did God do other than just opening your heart as he did with Lydia? Well, I want to suggest three things. Or not suggest, I want to tell you three things. I don't suggest things in the pulpit. Um, I want you to turn to Philippians 3, what we looked at earlier this, mor this morning. And the first work 
that God began as it relates to the book of Philippians is a spiritual circumcision, a spiritual circumcision. So we read in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision, and this is in contrast to the false circumcision at the end of verse 2. The we refers to all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem to us to be an unusual way to refer to us as New Testament believers as the true circumcision. So let's just remind ourselves what circumcision was all about. It was an Old Testament practice under the Mosaic law of cutting the male foreskin of a baby boy on the eighth day, and it symbolized that the nation of Israel was set apart unto God for God's purposes and for God's use. They were to be a light to the nations. But more than that, it had an individual significance as well. And when that male organ was cut, it signified that there had to come a time, there had to come a day in the future when the Spirit of God would cut the heart of that little boy when he would grow up to be of an age when he could truly believe his heart must be pierced by the sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God, wielded in the hand of the sovereign Spirit of God, and cut so deeply into that heart that that heart is opened up and set apart unto God. And that is exactly what the new birth is all about. And that is exactly what God did when he began that work in Philippi so long ago. And I want to say to you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is only because God filleted your heart, that God pierced your heart with a sharp two-edged sword of his word by the Spirit, and your heart was opened up and set apart unto God. Now, I want to give you some cross-references at this point, and I'm going to have to give them to you rather, rather quickly. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, God, uh, Moses records, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. In other words, you cannot love God in a personal relationship until God has circumcised your heart. In Jeremiah uh, 4 and, and verse 4, circumcise yourself to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. Now, this is something that only God can do. And in Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, interestingly enough, God speaks of those who are circumcised yet uncircumcised. They were circumcised physically, but they had never been circumcised spiritually. And then in the next verse, in Jeremiah 9, 26, he speaks of those who are circumcised of heart. Every true believer has the true circumcision. Every true believer believes in Christ because the Spirit of God has cut your heart 
with deep conviction of sin and has brought you to repentance and to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this continues in the New Testament. In Romans 2 and verse 29, Paul writes, Circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. And in Colossians 2.11, Paul writes, In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. So that's the work that God began in the believers in Philippi. Their hearts were hardened in unbelief, in radical corruption and total depravity of their nature. They were resistant to God. They were resistant to the message of salvation until that day God came with power and God cut open their heart and set them apart unto himself. Now I want you to note the second thing then that God did in that exact millisecond. Turn to Philippians 1. Philippians 1 in verse 29. And I want you to see what else God did when he began this work in the Philippians. And in Philippians 1 verse 29, we read, For, it, for to you, the you refers to believers, it has been granted, meaning something must be given as a gift. You may only receive it. You do not give it. You do not contribute to it. It has to be given by God for Christ's sake. Now notice what follows. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's the middle of that verse that I want to draw to your attention. It must be granted by God the Father for anyone to believe in Jesus Christ. Faith does not self-originate within us. Uh, unbelief originates within us, but not saving faith. Saving faith is a gift of God's grace that he gives to the one whom he circumcises their heart, cuts it open, sets it apart unto God himself, and in that moment, God grants saving faith. This truth is taught throughout the entire Bible. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. In Acts 3, and verse 16, uh, Peter preached and said, All faith in Christ is a faith that has come from Christ. Christ gives the faith that we exercise in him. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, a very well-known passage, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Question, what's not of yourself? Well, the closest antecedent is faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And so when God began this work in the Philippians, God circumcised their heart. God granted them saving faith in Christ, and then God placed them in Christ. 
And in the first verse of this book, chapter 1, verse 1, we read that all to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Uh, before their heart was circumcised and before they believed, they were outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in the world and of the world. Uh, they were of the kingdom of darkness. Uh, they were strangers to the kingdom of, of heaven and did not know Christ and were outside of Christ. But then when God circumcised their heart and granted them faith, God in that moment placed them in Christ Jesus and they became so identified with the Lord Jesus Christ that everything that was true of Christ immediately became true of them. And in that moment, they died to their old way of life because they were crucified with Christ. In that moment, they were raised unto newness of life, just as Jesus had been raised from the dead. At that moment, they were seated with Christ in heavenly places above. That's the work that God began in the Philippians. And what a thrilling thing it is to know this morning that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, as you look back at your conversion, that it was God the Father who began that work in you by, by His Son and by His Spirit, and God circumcised your heart. He cut deeply into your heart, and it's a painful cut. No one giggles into the kingdom of heaven. No one skips through the narrow gate. And we have all been wounded by the spiritual surgery of the true circumcision. And we come with deep conviction of sin and throw ourselves upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and preached, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Next verse, it says, they were cut to the heart, katanuso. It, it, it's used of a butcher's knife being thrust into a sacrificial animal. They were cut to the core, down to the bone, by, by the word of God as they were brought into the kingdom of God. Has God begun this work in you? And it's exclusively a work of God. Only God can perform this circumcision. Only God can give you saving faith. Only God can place you into the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the commencement of this work. Now, I need to press on here very quickly. And I want you to note third, not only the certainty and not only the commencement, but the continuation of this work. As we look at verse 16, he goes on to say that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. And that speaks of the, of the process throughout our entire Christian life, and we'll talk in a moment about its consummation at the end. But all who, in whom God begins a work of grace, God will perfect it progressively, and we refer to this as sanctification. There, there is no one that God begins a work of grace in that God does not immediately begin to conform them into the image of His Son, 
Jesus Christ. Every spiritual circumcision leads to spiritual sanctification. And that too is a work of God. If you would, turn to Philippians 2. Uh, Philippians 2, and I want us to look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 is our part. Verse 13 is God's part. And this speaks of sanctification. And what I want you to see is that, is that God continues to work in us throughout the entirety of our Christian life after he began that work in the new birth. And so in verse 12, so then my beloved, so he's obviously referring only to believers here, just as you have always obeyed. Now that's a key phrase. The, one of the distinguishing marks of the one in whom God has performed spiritual circumcision is that they are marked by a lifestyle of, of obedience to God. Their heart has been set apart unto God from the very beginning of their walk with the Lord, just as you have always obeyed. Not as in my presence only. In other words, Paul didn't have to be in town for them to obey. Paul could be off on a missionary journey and be in another region in another city and Paul wasn't the motivation for what they did. It, it was that their heart had been set apart to God, and that heart now was always obeying, whether Paul was in town or out of town. Now, continue to read. But now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, please note, he does not say work for your salvation, he says, work out your salvation. God's already worked it in. That's when God began the work in spiritual circumcision. Paul is now telling them, you need to work out what God has already worked in. And you are to take this very seriously. He says at the end of, of verse 12, with fear and trembling. I, I don't have time to do the word studies on that, but that's not a uh, a slight fear. In other words, we are to take God very seriously in the pursuit of holiness in our Christian lives. But look at verse 13. This is God who continues to work in us throughout the entirety of our Christian life. Verse 13, for it is God, and God here refers to God the Father, for God who is at work in you he began the work, he continues the work throughout the entirety of the Christian life. Notice what the work is that God does in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in your life, my friend. God is shaping you into the very image of Jesus Christ. He, he is the vine dresser who is pruning in your life that which does not look like his son, the Lord Jesus. And he is cultivating and nourishing you to bear fruit of Christ's likeness. And it is God the Father who is overseeing and orchestrating all of the affairs and all of the circumstances of your life. He's at work in you to conform you to the image of Christ. He is even bringing trials and using 
difficult times to humble us, to make us more dependent upon him, to wean, him, to wean us off of this world, to cause us to look more to him in prayer, to cause us to live for the world to come more and more. All of this is God continuing a work in us. So being very confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he is continuing to work in you. And this leads now to the fourth and final heading I want to put in front of you, the completion of this work. If you would, please come back to Philippians 1 and verse 6. Look at our text again. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, please note, will perfect it. How? Until unto what end? Until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ. Christ Jesus refers to the end of the age, the time of Christ's appearing. But he will continue this work, whether our death comes first or whether the return of Christ comes first. But it is God. He will bring to completion the work that he has begun. This speaks of glorification. That day when we step into eternity and we are fully perfected into the very image of Jesus Christ, as much as a saved sinner can be made like Christ. And what will happen in that day? Well, number one, we will be made like Christ. And in Philippians 3, verse 20 uh, and 21, uh, which was interestingly enough read earlier this morning in the, in the scripture reading, we see that our body will be made exactly like the resurrection body of our Lord Jesus Christ in his present glorified state. In Philippians 3 and verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Our body will be made like Christ. You will be given a body that will be perfectly adapted for your future home in heaven, a body that will never grow weary, a body that will never grow tired, a body with which you will be able to worship God forever and ever and ever and need no rest. You will have glorified eyes with which you can look upon the Lord Jesus. You will have a glorified mouth with which you will praise him forever. You will have a glorified heart as your affections for him will be greatly expanded. You will have glorified hands with which you may serve him. You will have glorified knees with which you may bow before him, before his throne of grace. You will have glorified hands with which you will take the, the crown that he will place on your head and cast it back at his feet, signifying that he alone is the accomplisher of your salvation. We will be given 
a body that will be endued supernaturally with energy and power to worship and serve and love God forever and ever and ever with a heightened sense of joy and a heightened sense of, of pleasures forevermore in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's going to bring this project of our lives all the way to completion. But it's not just our body. It's also our soul within our body. Our sin nature will be eradicated. Uh, that will be, we will shed that sin nature and it will no longer be uh, within our mortal body. And all that will be left is the new man in Christ that we became in the new birth. Uh, what a glorious future awaits us. And it is God himself who guarantees that he will bring this project all the way to completion and there will be no dropouts along the way. Now, I want you to turn back to Romans 8 just for a second. So you know this is going to be good as soon as you hear me say Romans 8. James Montgomery Boyce, the great expositor, said, If the Bible is a ring, the book of Romans is the diamond on the ring, and Romans 8 is the apex cut on that diamond on that ring. Here is uh, Mount Everest, if you will. Now, in verse 29, I want to read verse 29 and 30, and I want you to listen to my voice inflection. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Million dollar question, who is the he? Well, process of elimination, number one, is not Jesus Christ. Because in verse 29, whoever the he is, is distinguished from his son. So the he is not his son. And the he is also distinguished from the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned in verse 27 and verse 26. That only leaves one other person of the Godhead. And that is God the Father. And God the Father, who is mentioned in verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. What I want you to see is it is God the Father who foreknew you before the foundation of the world. That means he chose to love his elect before time began. He foreknew you in eternity past. He also then predestined you. Within time, he called you, and he justified you, and in eternity future, he will glorify you. Who is the he? From eternity past to eternity future, it is God the Father who is superintending and superseding this whole enterprise of salvation. It is the Father who sent the Son into this world to be born under the law, to be born of a woman, to live a sinless and perfect life, 
and to be lifted up upon Calvary's cross. It is God the Father who took your sins and transferred them to His Son. And it is God the Father who took the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is the Father who imputed it to your account so that you would be faultless before Himself. It is God the Father who sent the Holy Spirit. It is God the Father who placed the Holy Spirit within you. It is God the Father who is keeping you preserved in the Son and in the, by the Spirit. And it is God the Father on the last day who will glorify you, making you like His Son. So let us not forget God the Father. That is why when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because all three persons of the Trinity are a Savior. That is why we do not baptize only in the name of Jesus. Because God the Father is a Savior. God the Son is a Savior. God the Holy Spirit is a Savior. And all three persons of the Godhead act as one Savior in perfect unity, saving the same sinners. And so, in this text that we've looked at today in Philippians 1, in verse 6, it is a text by which we trace the stream of grace upriver all the way back to the origin. Uh, we trace it back past Calvary. We trace it back through the Old Testament. We trace it back into eternity past. We trace it back to the divine deliberation within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we trace it back to the architect of the eternal decree, to the author of the plan of salvation, the one who designed the gospel, the one who has sent the Son and sent the Spirit. It is God the Father. And it is God the Father who began this work in you because He actually began it in eternity past because those whom He foreknew, He predestined, and whom He predestined, He called and He justified. And the future is so certain that we'll be glorified. It's already as though it is in the past. We have already been glorified. So what a glorious thing it is to be the object of God's work. That for God to, to so be at work in our life to rescue us out of this world of darkness and to bring us to himself. Well, there's only one way to come to God the Father, and that is through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other way for filthy, depraved, wicked sinners to find acceptance with a holy God in heaven except through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said there's salvation in no other name. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you are to be saved, if you are to come before the Father with acceptance, if your sins are to be washed away, if the righteousness of Christ is to be given to you, then God must circumcise your heart and he must grant you saving faith and place you in Christ. And if he will do that, he will continue this work in you and he will never give up on you. He will never walk away. He will never, never leave you nor forsake you. And it, you are so sealed in Christ that in John 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow after me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, for no man shall pluck them out of my hand. Now listen to this. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will pluck them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. Here's what it is. We are held in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, no one will ever fall out of his grip of grace. But then the Father, as it were, puts his hand over the Son's hand. We are doubly sealed in our salvation. And Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit seals us in Christ as well. What a great salvation the Lord has given to us. If you've never committed your life to Christ, if you've never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I call you this day to step out of darkness, to step out of this world, to come to Christ, to throw yourself upon his mercy. And him who comes unto me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. These are my last words. Jesus gave this invitation. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Come to Christ. He loves to gather in and receive sinners. Tell him what a sinner you are. Tell him how much you need his grace. And he will gather you into his arms of love if you will come in repentance and faith. And the only way to do that is for God to begin this work in you. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this text of scripture. It is an anchor for our soul. It is a cornerstone for our faith. How we praise you that you would be so immutable and so irrevocable in the way that you continue your work in us. May we find great comfort this day in this verse. In Jesus' name, amen.